welcome to Race, Violence, and Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Brian H. Williams, and you're listening to I Am Royalty Radio. Now, I'm excited about today's show because we're doing something new. Today is the first installment of the Race, Violence, and Medicine book club. Now, if you've been following the show since we launched a few months ago, I'm sure you're saying to yourself, well, Dr. Brian, you did a show a few months ago with uh, Joyce King talking about her book. So, yes, we have had an author and we've discussed a book. But the book club is different. We've taken it up a level. So what makes us different? If you were assigned up to my newsletter, you would have received a notice telling you about the selection for this month, which is Hitler's Jewish Soldiers. You would have learned about our author, Brian Rigg, and had an opportunity to, to submit some of your own author questions. And lastly, you would have been automatically entered into a drawing to receive a free copy of that book. So three things about the book club. Advance notice, you can read it, send your questions in, and a chance to win a free book. So we're fortunate today that author Brian Rigg is actually here with us in the studio. And he's going to personalize and sign a copy for our winner who has already been selected. So if you're listening to us now, it's too late to enter, but you can still go to brianwilliamsmd.com Sign up for the newsletter so you don't miss out next time. So let's get to our guest, author Brian Rigg, talking about his book, Hitler's Jewish Soldiers. Brian graduated with honors from Yale. He has a PhD from Cambridge. He is a U.S. Marine Corps veteran and also served as a volunteer in the Israeli Army. His book, Hitler's Jewish Soldiers, won the Colby Award in 2003 and has been profile on many news shows, most notably uh, NBC's Dateline. So, Brian, welcome to Race, Violence, and Medicine. It's good to be here. Thanks, Brian, for Thanks having for me. Thanks for taking time to come out. I'm excited about this show. So, this book, it's, it's deep and it's impressive. But before we get into that, I want to learn more about you. So, tell us some of it about your background. Tell us about this Colby Award. What is that about? So, William E. Colby was a former CIA director, and he died under mysterious circumstances several years ago. And Jim Pritzker, who set up the Pritzker Military Library, worked with Norwich University, one of the um, oldest, I believe, military academies uh, in, the, uh, in the United States, worked with that university to set up the William E. Colby Award for the best book uh, of a certain year on military history. And I believe it is also couched by first-time authors. Uh, so I was in the running, and then I, I won that award, and I was very honored and went there. And you had, um, you know, We Were Soldiers Once, a young Galloway, uh, and then a— That was he, a Mel Gibson movie. Yes, okay. that's right. right. And Galloway there, who was one of the authors, with Hal Moore, the colonel. Okay. Uh, he was there to present the, uh, uh, the award with Carlo D'Este, another historian. So it's, a, it's called the Colby Writer Symposium at Norwich, and they get together and they— have basically a Congress and they vote, and I was voted in for the award in 2003. Well, congratulations. Your, your first book out, this major award, that must have made you feel pretty good. Yeah, I did. And yeah. you've since published several other books, but we're going to talk about this one today because uh, I'll just tell you that I was impressed not just by the content and the subject matter, but the way you wrote it. Like, I, I couldn't put it down. I'm reading from one paragraph to the next. I'm like, okay, what's going to happen next? It was that well written. Oh, so, thanks. How'd you get interested in this this subject? Because the title right there that kind of grabs you: Hitler's Jewish soldiers. Yeah, yeah it's you know it's kind of like you know Jefferson Davis's black soldiers. I mean, it's <laughs> just you know it it makes people go wait wait a second, what are you talking about there? So how did I get involved with this? Uh, I was over in Germany in 1992 to research my family's background and learn the language of my ancestors. Most of my family on my mother's side came from towns in Germany that were behind the Iron Curtain. So when Germany uh, became united in 1989, and East no longer became, you know, was communist, uh, they opened up their courthouses and, of course, their train lanes to all these cities. I was like, man, I can go there now, a couple of years into it, and the, uh, the, the reunification of Germany, and I can learn about my ancestors. So as I started learning about my ancestors, I found out I had all these Jews in the family tree, and I never knew about that before. At the so same time. Prior to this, you had no idea no, about your Jewish ancestry. No, I thought ancestry. I was 100% wasp, white okay. Anglo-Saxon Protestant. And uh, also during this time, I uh, had um, gone to a movie in Berlin about a Jew who served in the Nazi military. It's a movie called Europa Europa. So I was looking at that uh, movie, and I saw this person who was 
trying to survive. It's based on a true story by being in the Nazi military and Jewish. And after this film, I asked the man next to me what he thought. And he had helped me translate the dialogue. We had had a friendly discussion beforehand. And this man turned out to be a German veteran and of Jewish descent and had served in the German military as well. So after these two experiences, and then I had another story in my background in my family that played with my imagination as well. I had a great uncle in World War I, and he found a dead German on the battlefield that he took a diary off of and some other things. And it turned out he found a cousin on the battlefield. Uh, now, this has happened in many other so battlefields. He, he was fighting and he found his cousin. Yeah, he was fighting for America. Okay. And he, was, he found a dead German on the battlefield and he took some uh, uh, materials off. You know, Americans in general are souvenir junkies when it right. comes to, uh, to war. Right. Uh, the stuff that guys were taking back from Nazi Germany and, and Japan and Vietnam. I mean, we always uh, have these. And they're kids. I mean, so they're collecting all this stuff. So my uncle was no different. So I had the story in my head. Here was um, my great uncle. He served in the Meuse-Argonne Offensive. He fought against the Germans. He found uh, one German that was a cousin of his. Later on, my great-great-grandfather uh, documented this. And this cousin, German cousin, I now I found out he was of Jewish descent. And I was thinking, it's interesting. This guy could serve in World War I for Germany as a Jew, as a patriot. But had he survived 25 years later, Hitler would have stuck him in an oven and killed him. So what does it mean to be Jewish, and why didn't I know about this? So I had these three kind of stories that kind of running in my head to give birth to this book. One was my own ancestry, which was a hyphenated ancestry, if you will. We're all hyphenated. I mean, there's no one pure race. We're part of one race, the human race. Uh, and so as I started looking into this, like, okay, this is one part of my ethnic background, if you will. What does that mean? And then I also had this other story, like, hey, I saw that movie about a Jew who served in the Nazi military, only to sit next to a Wehrmacht veteran. Wehrmacht is the German word for the German military World War II. Sat next to a Wehrmacht veteran of Jewish descent. How many more of these guys are out there? Right. So I went back to Yale University, where I was studying at the time, and I sat down with a lot of my professors, and I started asking them, should I look into this? Is some, has anybody ever looked into it that you know of? And they all told me, hey, we, we've never heard of this before. And as I started studying about assimilation, I started realizing there was a lot of these people of Jewish descent who served in the Nazi military but didn't consider themselves Jewish. I mean, think about the, the craziness if all of a sudden Americans said, okay, you have to be white or you have to be black uh, to do a certain thing. Well, how white do you have to be? I mean, if you have a mother that's black and a father that's white, are you black or white? You know, well, well, Hitler started this problem. You're, you're Jewish, you're bad. Well, how Jewish do you have to be? And so you had this huge um, uh, industry, cottage industry in Germany, of doing genealogical research on people's background. And suddenly you started hyphenating up all these people and creating legal fictions. And what they came up with was half Jews and quarter Jews and full Jews. That and brings us to the, the first chapter in your book, which... What's it called? What is it? What is it? What is a Jew? Yeah. So when I say that, I feel like I'm using a, a racial slur, but it's a, it's a provocative title, but it's an academic title as well. So yeah. help me with that, please. Yeah, I mean, good, good, good question. Um, being a Jew is, I mean, there's kind of, it's a very complicated uh, concept. I mean, one of my professors, Stephen Smith at, at Yale said, you know, a person is Jewish who continually asks himself his entire life what it means to be a Jew. Because a Jew, unlike other categories out there, whether you say Christian or black or white, I mean, there's a lot of things that can go into defining those uh, definitions that you might put onto your mantle of who you are as a human being. But being a Jew or being Jewish, it can be three things. It can be two of those three. It can be all three. It can just be one. Jewishness is a, can be religion. Uh, it is a culture, and they're finding it's an ethnicity. So you have a lot of problems when you look at uh, Nazi Germany, and when you look at how Jewish did you have to be to be persecuted and killed? How Jewish did you have to be to be able to be allowed in the military? And then today, people take their own concepts of, of Jewishness. A lot of people don't know this, but ultra-Orthodox Jews only believe a Jew is a person who is born of a Jewish mother. So your father can be the arch rabbi of Israel, have a child with a Gentile, and that child will not be considered a Jew by most Jewish people. Although, you know, if his mother was just a peasant 
you know, Jewish woman in Ethiopia, which was a huge Jewish community there, and that's a whole other topic. So by that definition, and I would say the title of the chapter is Who is a Jew, not What is a Jew. And yeah. I, I, that's yeah. an important distinction to make, right? Yeah. Who is a Jew? Humans are de- dehumanizing them. But your description there, definition is by birthright from the mother. That's right. That's what most religious Jews believe. Now, religious. in America, Reformed Jews will believe that a father is just as good as a mother. Because uh, you always hear about women getting married and they have to convert to Judaism absolutely. because of the husband's religion. That's right. And they, and they don't want the child to be born before the mother is a kosher Jew. You know, because then the child is not kosher. Okay. And that's very important for birthright laws in, in, in Israel and then also for marriage later on. But there's always a stigma. When somebody's a convert, uh, they, uh, ultra-Orthodox Jews always look at them with a, a skeptical eye. There is, you know, it, it's unfortunate. In some, you know, uh, Judaism has so many beautiful things about it. Um, the sadaka, charity, uh, education. Uh, taking care of people who are less fortunate, beautiful things. But they also, the ultra-Orthodox have a horrible prayer that they give every morning that they thank God for not making them a woman, and they thank God for not making them a Gentile. Very racist. It's almost like saying, you know, thank God for not making me an Asian. Thank God, you know, for, you know, a sex, you know, they make the woman inferior. And a lot of the laws actually do put women at a different level. But there's this um, concept of citizenship. How do you do citizenship? And this is what's interesting, and I may be getting way too academic, but I wasn't academic. Hey, I'll, I'll stop you if, yeah. it's, if it's too much, but let's keep on going. Yeah, so this is what's interesting. When you look at, you know, I know we are in a Judaic Christian environment in America, and a lot of people who are listening are probably grew up in the church. And when you study the Old Testament about the tribes of Israel, it used to be definition was what tribe you were of. So it was patrilineal. It was who your father was. Tribe of Benjamin, tribe of Dan, tribe of Asher, and so on. Where did it change to the mother? Well, it changed under Caesar Augustus. Roman law said, we always know who the mother is. You never know who the father is. So women actually denote citizenship. They can, I mean, they can give that because we always know who the mother is. And the mother always knows who her child is. Right. So historically, the father determined whether or not you were Jewish. Until Until Caesar Caesar said, no, the mother. So these are just, they're just pulling this out of thin air, right? They're just just making these random decisions about what defines uh, who who is a Jew, basically. And who's in the in-group. Right. And, And Jews at that time were influenced by Roman law. But what's interesting, what stayed is status in Judaism is still through the father. Levi and Cohen. Levi is the descendants of Aaron, and Cohen are the descendants of Moses. They have the status, and they are the first ones called to read the Torah, the Bible, and and synagogues, and so on. But citizenship is women. And so this caused a lot of confusion with my book, because a lot of people come to it, and they have all these different definitions of it, because Hitler's definition was very different. Uh, We're going to get into that. We're going to start talking about that after the break. So we're here with Brian Rigg talking about his book, Hitler's Jewish Soldiers. This is our Race, Violence, and Medicine book club. Thanks for tuning in. Hold on. We'll be back after a break. Yeah, unfortunately, some of the most people I've ever been around are...
Welcome back to Race, Violence, and Medicine. We are here with author Brian Rigg. We are discussing his book, Hitler's Jewish Soldiers. So you mentioned that when you went to Germany, you thought you were a wasp, mm-hmm. learned you were, you were Jewish. Mm-hmm. What was that like for you to learn that? Because I can, I can imagine for some folks that may be very disconcerting. Yeah, you know, at, at, well, at first a lot of people were concerned to some degree, and they, they came from different areas. Uh, so the first group of people that were concerned, I sat down with my family, and I said, look what I found out, because I just, you know, why didn't we know about this? I wasn't really worried about anti-Semitism, uh, per se, but a lot of my family were. I mean, they started going, you know, we shouldn't talk about this. Uh, your great-grandfather wouldn't have liked it. And there's one group of people he didn't like to deal with. It was Jews when he was a rancher. Not, never mind the fact that now we found out he's Jewish. And I, and I looked at him, I was like, well, you, you guys are Christians. You love Jesus. He was a Jew. Oh, that was different. I was like, no, it's not. He was a rabbi. He was the king of the Jews. Right. You know, and they're like, you know what? We have enough problems as it is as a family. We don't need anti-Semitism too. So at first they had a hard time with it. Conversely, when I went to uh, a lot of ultra, uh, there was a lot of uh, ultra-Orthodox Jews that were very kind, and they, and they embraced me, and they said, hey, this is something that is very interesting for you. Uh, maybe God gave you this quest to learn about this. Why did you not know about it? But now that you do, what are you going to do with it? But they all, uh, I remember Rabbi Haskell Besser in New York. Uh, there's a wonderful book called The Rabbi of 84th Street about him, a wonderful man. He said, Brian, it's a burden to be a Jew. It's, it, we have to do all these laws. We have more obligations. God tells us we have to do more. And it had been easier for you just to walk away. So I started on the quest <clears throat> that I really focus a lot in the book is, you know, what does it mean to be Jewish? And where does it help you? Where does it hurt you? And historically, quite often, it's always hurt us as Jews. Anti-Semitism has been one of the most grotesque, ugly um, uh, aspects of humanity that I've studied right. in cultures. And so it made me really come to terms with kind of being part of a minority all of a sudden, even though you know most people say Jews are doing very well, but they've been persecuted as a minority for thousands of years. So let's, let's talk about that and the, the rise of the racial laws during World War II, well, I guess leading up to World War II. Mm-hmm. So your book is about Hitler's Jewish soldiers, so there were many soldiers of Jewish descent. Many, some assumed command rank and became some of his closest advisors. Mm-hmm. Some knew they were Jewish going in, and some found out after. So there's a lot to unpack there. So wh- how, break that down for us that are listening and saying, like, our minds are blown by this whole concept. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, if, if uh, I would encourage all of you out there, if you haven't done genealogical research, especially the DNA testing, you do it. Uh, I think you'll find fascinating that we all share common ancestry. I remember when I was studying genetics at, at Yale, and then I'll get to your, your question about, you know, Hitler and these racial laws and what they meant and, and where they came from. Uh, we were at Yale, and we had a, a genetic um, case study of this African-American couple. They had a child, and it was like a Swedish, you know, princess, blonde, blue-eyed. And, of course, the dad's like, okay, you know, what's going on? They did DNA testing. They found that both of them had, you know, great-great-grandparents somewhere that was Caucasian, and just, you know, the, the pie just got mixed up in a certain way that that was the genetic which, result. Which wouldn't surprise most black folks in this country because we know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's plenty, you know, of, right. of, of, of mix. I mean, there's no purebred of anything. Right. Well, conversely, there was a white couple that came in, and she had given birth to an African-American child, and he was upset, and then they did study, and they found that right. he had African-American descent he didn't know about. So when you got into uh, Germany, what's fascinating with Nazi Germany is that before Hitler came into power, it really was a religious question. You know, like I told you, there's these, there these concepts in Judaism, religion, culture, ethnicity. Hitler changed it to blood and race. And all these people are like, you know, hey, my grandparents converted. They're Christians. They're German. They're not Jewish anymore. Well, he says, no, you, you can't will away what's in your blood. You know, thank God he didn't know about genetics. So all of a sudden they started looking into how Jewish did you have to be to be bad? Because suddenly when he put the Aryan laws into place in 1933, they basically said if you had a non-Aryan, and this is, Weird concept. Aryan is old, uh, basically a derivative of Iran, where people came from. And these were supposedly pure-bred, blonde, blue-eyed people. But if anybody's ever seen any pictures of Persians, Iranians, they're definitely not blonde and blue-eyed in general, you know. But so this was all a myth. 
But he said, hey, anybody who had one Jewish uh, uh, non-Aryan grandparent was a non-Aryan and would be excluded from government, be excluded from the academic uh, setting, be excluded from the military. And suddenly thousands and thousands of people, when they did genealogical researches, found that they had a quote-unquote non-Aryan. Uh, they had most often a Jewish uh, grandparent or two. And suddenly Hitler's like, oh, my God, I have these generals and admirals and U-boat captains, and I got these people in the party and so on. So let's And they, they identified <laughs> as being German. German. They, they were Germans. Some had served in World War One as well or yeah. had family members that served in World War One, and now mm-hmm. they're, changing, they're, they're changing the rules of the game yeah. based on Hitler's. Absolutely. I mean, you had 100,000 uh, German Jews that served in World War I. 12,000 of them died for Germany. In Austria and Hungarian Empire, you had 300,000 uh, Jews that served for Austria. 25,000 died. More Jews died in Austrian German militaries in World War I than all Israeli conflicts deaths to date. So they were very patriotic. They were very German. They did not think that Hitler was talking to them. They thought Hitler was talking about the ultra-Orthodox, that you could really ascertain that they were Jewish, the beards, the sidelocks, the captains. And suddenly when Hitler opened up this Pandora's box saying, Jews are bad, and we're going to define a Jew, quote-unquote, as a non-Aryan, and a non-Aryan is a person who has at least one grandparent that's not Germanic, he created a nightmare because he didn't understand genetics. Uh, Societies are not groups. They're relationships. People come together. They fall in love, and they have kids. And um, suddenly, he had to go back to the drawing board in 1935, and he created what was called the Nuremberg Laws. And here is where you got more of a codification of who was really a Jew. And a Jew, according to the Nazis at this time, was a person who had three or more Jewish grandparents or who practiced the Jewish religion. And then he created two new legal classifications. They were fiction. A half-Jew, a person with two Jewish grandparents, and a quarter-Jew, a person with one Jewish grandparent. And these people were required to serve in the military, yet they were second-class citizens, kind of like the African-American soldier in World War II. They could serve in the military, but they were treated as second-class citizens, not only in the military, but also at home with the Jim Crow laws. So this is what was going on in Germany at this time. And so these guys who come from strong military traditions, many of them are high-ranking officers, and now they're faced with, I have to get special compensation to either stay in the military if I want to, <clears throat> or try to get this status of being Jewish right. written out of my genealogical record. So there's so there's definitely some some parallels between African American military service in our country and uh, the quarter yeah. Jews and partial or half Jews in Germany. The difference was they went through great pains to erase any evidence of that to serve, and they could they could assimilate because they you could hide. You could be identified. On, on site. Yeah, yeah. Their pigmentation wasn't off. I mean, there was a. So few tell, us about, tell us about that process of, like, denouncing your your ancestry in order to serve in this uh, armed forces that were essentially out to eradicate. Yeah. Well, we, we we always. I mean, it's an enduring legacy of humanity that quite often the persecuted minority does everything they can to become like the majority. You know. I mean, Eddie Murphy in the uh, Saturday Night Live skit, Mr. White, I believe, is is a fascinating social commentary. Right, that it points out the absurdity of, of racism and all all that. Uh, absolutely. But and tell me about these folks. I mean, yeah. they would they, they did a lot of work to they did an awful to, lot to stay in and serve even at the highest levels. And the they army. wanted to prove. I mean, many of them didn't know about their Jewish background because before they had to do their ancestry, everybody had to walk around with a family tree book. Can you imagine? Not only did you have to have a passport. And driver's license, but yet had a family tree book to get right. jobs and you know and get uh, into certain areas and whatnot. And if that tree book was not kosher, Aryan, if you will, then you were rejected from a lot of professions and a lot of travel and things of that sort. So these guys That's, did everything they could to prove their Germanness. And back then, since it was talked about blood, there was this eugenic concept that even though you had a Jewish father, you could have inherited all your blood from your Jewish mother, I mean, your, your Gentile mother. It's kind of like the Gregor Mendel concept. You know, big P, little P, big P. Green P, yellow P, green P. And that's how, what they were influenced by. So many of these guys did everything they could to de-Jewify themselves. They got divorced. Got, they denounced yeah. their parents. They yep. denounced their children. <clears throat> they went to extremes 
to separate themselves from their ancestry yeah. so oh. they can serve in this army. Yeah, well, one of the most extreme yeah. examples is uh, Field Marshal Milch. He was uh, basically the equivalent of a five-star general. He ran the Luftwaffe. Goering was a buffoon when it came to command structure. Uh, he was a brave pilot in World War One, but even though he was head of the Luftwaffe, it was Milk that was really the brains behind things. And his mother went to the authorities and said, "My Jewish father, Anton—I mean, my Jewish husband, Anton Milk, uh, Milch is how they say it—is uh, not the father of my six children. It's my Aryan lover, who happens to be my uncle. And by the way, he's dead." And sure enough, they did an investigative uh, medical exam on all the children, found the blonde hair, the blue eyes, and they basically declared all of them kosher Aryans. And that allowed them to serve and serve bravely, and they were able to discard this uh, blemish in their family tree. So guys are doing that all the time. You have guys, yeah, that are denouncing their, their wives. They're divorcing their wives. You have a lot of guys divorcing themselves, quote-unquote, away from their children and trying to distance themselves from the Jewish uh, background. So it is very sad to see in this society what people would go to to, what, to do what they think they needed to do in order to survive. As Primo Levi, a phenomenal writer of the Holocaust, said, he says, all of us who survived know that the best of us did not survive because of what we had to do in order to survive. And so I think... Oh, well, you, you got to say that one again, Brian, because that's like a... You got to tweet that quote out. Say it again. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, Primo said, you know, the best of us who survived. I mean, the, the, the ones of us survived are not the best of the ones uh, that, you know, were suffering back then uh, because what we had to do in order to survive compromised our moral compass. Right. And so that's, and quite often you had to do an awful lot in order to be a part of the majority at that time, Nazi Germany. You were part of an organization that was one of the most evil organizations known to mankind. But many of them didn't know it at the time how bad they were because before you knew it, they were caught up into something much larger than they could ever have imagined being, uh, you know, implemented on the face of mankind. Right. You know? Let's take another break here. We are here with author Brian Rigg discussing his book, Hitler's Jewish Soldiers. This is our first installment of the Race, Violence, and Medicine book club. Stick with us. We'll be back in a moment.
Welcome back to Race, Violence, and Medicine. We are here with author Brian Rigg talking about his book, Hitler's Jewish Soldiers. So, Brian, we talked about what, uh, what defines being Jewish. We talked about if it is, if is it a religion, is it a birthright from your mother, birthright from your father, is it a race? And clearly Hitler kept moving the bar to satisfy his needs. So talk to us about how he and his subordinates decided who was okay enough to serve in the military and, and how they granted exemptions to folks that were clearly had Jewish ancestry. Yeah, so you have all these people that are coming forward out of the woodwork, so to speak, that had a hidden Jewish grandmother somewhere and didn't, didn't know about it. Um, so what Hitler did, and, and, and just on a side note, there was a DNA study done on 39 of Hitler's relatives uh, the last decade, and they found that he had African and Jewish antecedents. Now, we all have African eventually. I mean, if we go back, I mean, they say there's six main, uh, six uh, female groups, six Eves, they call them, that we all stem from in Africa. So maybe that's not really uh, shocking as that he had Jewish background. So here's Hitler, the highest authority in the land, deciding who's in the in-group and who's in the out-group. And the out-group, a lot of times, is being exterminated by his stroke of his pen simply uh, uh, because he felt he was the highest authority of genetics in the land. Didn't right, even have a high school. In your book, you have, you, you have documents where he signed and said, uh, he's okay, he's not. He's not. He's, and it's just arbitrary. It is. It's totally arbitrary. What, you know, how did he get up? What side of the bed did he get up on? Uh, what was he feeling? Uh, so Hitler would actually, he, he allowed the legal process. I mean, everything I'm talking about, this racism in Nazi Germany was codified by law. I forget, uh, Hermann uh, uh, Wook. Uh, wrote a book, and it was something like, I forget, like 20,000 laws that were made during the 30, uh, third, uh, third Reich dealing with race. So Hitler allowed exemptions. If you were blonde and blue-eyed, had good military track record and a good family and a good pedigree and so on, uh, he would reserve the right to give three different type of classifications of exemptions. The first one allowed you to stay in the military. The second one allowed you to stay in the military and be promoted with the caveat that if you did well, he might Aryanize you later, declare you of German blood. <laughs> I'm sorry, that just sounds, that just sounds so absurd. Absurd. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like declaring, okay, you are such a good person in society, you know, speaking of a very, uh, let's say the Confederacy. You're such a good black person, we're declaring you white. I'll, yeah. You can have that one back. Exactly. <laughs> but these guys were hungering for it. Because this would give them status in society to protect their family. And they all felt Aryan back then, unlike the white and black connotation analogy that I just gave you, was a Aryan was like the status of we're part of the Germanic populace. We're, we're part of this society. They, well, they, they, felt, they felt like they were Germans. Yeah, right? it might be like a better analogy would be like, OK, we're, we're going to declare you white. So now you get the title of American. And you get citizenship and passport. But so they may did. be thinking Aryan is bogus. A lot of them did. They said, this is a stupid concept, and this doesn't make any sense. But this gets me back to being a German citizen. Right. And the third category, Hitler would just write out, declare these people. It, it's called the Deutschblutigkeitserklärungen, uh, the German blood declarations. And he would just outright declare these people of German blood, and then they were Aryanized. And their documents would be suddenly saying, hey, these guys are Germanic. And they don't have any Jewish background. Right. And we, we made a couple of comparisons to life for African-Americans in this country. Uh, but a key difference is, and I even mentioned in your book, is that Jews in Germany at some point for a long time enjoyed all the equality of anybody else. That was never the case in the United, United States for, yeah. for black Americans. Well, there, there's two, yeah, there's two things to look at right now uh, when, you, when you're comparing the two. One is, yes, uh, Jews had had equal rights, especially in the Weimar Republic time in the 20s, uh, and they were considered equal citizens. Now, there was discrimination and racism like there is in every society, but by and large, they had equal rights under law, and then suddenly it was taken away from them. Now, and I in your book, when you talk to them, they, they describe themselves as German. They don't say, I'm Jewish. They say, I'm German. German. Your own oral histories of these folks. Absolutely, so even to this day. That must have really played with their identity when they're being told, well... You're not. Yeah, you don't, you don't quite... Yeah, there's a Ralph von Sudow. He wrote a book called uh, uh, Fear or Angst to Breathe. And he had horrible asthma and horrible anxiety during the war. And he was always trying to do more. He was in a tank uh, uh, battalion. And after the war was over and Nazi, uh, Nazism had gone away, 
his asthma went away. He never had any problems with breathing again. Now, what's interesting here is while these guys are serving, Hitler's slaughtering their families. So unlike our situation with the African-Americans in World War II, although they didn't ever have equal rights uh, beforehand and it was taken away, at least when these guys were serving, yes, they were persecuted. They were not treated as, as true Americans, which they were. Uh, but their families at least were not being exterminated. They were maybe being persecuted, and in many cases were being persecuted. We have that documented. But they, they were still being lynched. That, that was happening. Being lynched, that but time. It was, there wasn't systematic extermination going on. So this is what's interesting. With the military? Or? No, no, like the government putting them in ovens and killing, you know, well, wanting was, to do away with the there race. There was no genocide going on at that time, but there exactly. was definitely systemic racism. There was, yeah, there was yeah. absolutely right, right. Uh, bad racism, no doubt. But this is what's crazy. These guys, whether. Were these. The, how do you say the word Mischling? Yeah, Mischling is singular. Mischling is plural. So when Hitler now, identified a, half Jew and quarter Jew, is that a, is that a slur? I, I want to. Yeah. So I should saying that is a bad word. Yeah. But for the purposes it, of this dis academic discussion, yeah. we're going to use that to explain. Quarter yeah, ladies Jews and gentlemen, and for the record, as an academic, many of the phraseology that we're using in this discussion is historical in its right. nature and is it's help us to understand the reality from back then, but does not denote. And any stretch of the imagination, right. confirmation or uh, verification that these terms should or be validation. used. Validation, okay. Yeah, validation well, would be a better term. I cut so, Mischling is a, yeah, German, a German term for mutt. Oh my it's God. what people use for dogs. Okay. That's exactly what Hitler thought of these people. These people were mongrels. Uh, and, uh, and so, when somebody actually had in their identification papers, Mischling Erstengradis, Mischling of the first degree, is basically like that woman or man going into an official bureaucratic place saying, yeah, I'm a, a mutt, a hybrid, half-breed. Oh, uh, all right, so you could be an officer in the German military, identified as a Michelin, Michelin. Mm -hmm. and that's how you would identify yourself? I am, I'm, I'm saying I am a mutt who yeah. is serving in the Army? Well, if you were asked directly, most of them would say, I'm a German soldier, I'm German, and just leave it at that. But when they looked in their papers and they looked at what laws and codes that were identifying them as far as what they were entitled to in society or entitled to as rank, entitled to as responsibility, yes, it's all in their papers. Their papers are like, okay, you're a Michelin. Now, in your book, you talked about when you actually met one of the veterans and you, you got to a, go to a reunion with him. To meet with his uh, mm -hmm. his group, and he was the lone uh, Jewish soldier in this group, but he didn't want you to tell them about that. Tell us about that story. Oh, yeah, that's, a, that's one of my my favorite stories. It's sad in some respects, but it is funny. So, Herr Bomberger was actually a court judge in Garmisch. He's now since passed, so I feel free using his name. I I, I use the pseudonym in uh, in my book. And after I interviewed him. Uh, he, uh, he, he was watching me pack up my video uh, equipment and so on, and his girlfriend came in. She was like 50 years old. You know, he was 75, 76 at the time. Yeah, I, I looked at him. I was like, wow. And he's like, well, you know, I still got it, and I'm in shape, you know. And I was like, oh, good for you, Herr Humber, uh, Bomberger. So she said, you know, you should take the young man tonight. And she, he tried to hush her up, and she's like, no, the young man would find it interesting. You should take him. And I looked at him, I go, Harry Bomber, what's going on tonight? He's like, well, uh, my veteran group, we get together once a month at a bar, and we go and we talk about our lives, and we, you know, we have camaraderie again and so on. Would you like to go? He wasn't very enthusiastic. I hope you would say no. Yeah, okay. yeah. I was like, oh, that'd be great. That'd be interesting. He's like, okay, <laughs> hey, if you go, you got to promise me two things. First, you can't tell anybody about my Jewish background because uh, they don't know about that. And second of all, you can't tell them what you're studying about Jews and men of Jewish descent in the Nazi military. you got to tell them you're studying, I don't know, how about the artillery tactics of the mountain troops? And I looked at it because he was in the mountain troops in World War II. I was like, you know, Herr Bomberger, I don't know too much about the mountain troops uh, uh, and the artillery tactics uh, of World War II. How about I just tell him I'm studying the social dynamics of the Wehrmacht on the company level? He's like, yeah, yeah, that's good. I was like, okay, that's what we'll tell him. <laughs> so a few hours later, we go into this bar. There's all these veterans uh, there, and many of them have heard this young American historian was going to come and, and speak to them. So as I walked in, I could tell he was extremely nervous, basically latched onto my right shoulder as if to prevent me from jumping up on the table and going, he's Jewish, he, he shouldn't be here, you know, he's an imposter. You know, but he, after a few minutes, he saw I was being very discreet, and he left me to my own devices, and I worked my way around the table, and I eventually came into conversation with their company commander. Big brute of a guy, six foot four, 220 pounds, he had scars all up and down his hands and forearms where in 19, uh, I think, 42, he was knocked unconscious by a concussion grenade. And when he came to, 
uh, he was in a prisoner of war camp. And he was put on burial details. A lot of guys in these POW camps would die, and they would have to put them in these big crates that usually supplies came in, and they would take them outside the camp and bury them in mass graves. Well, one day he noticed that the Russian guards weren't watching him very closely, so he had his men bury him alive. And when he was sure the Russian guards were gone, he clawed his way out of this wooden crate, out of the earth, and made it back to his lines like 40 miles away. Wow. I mean, the guy was hardcore. <laughs> so as I'm talking about how he trained his men, his experiences in combat, his leadership philosophies, I asked him, you know, during my study of the social dynamics of the Wehrmacht on the company level, I've come across an interesting <laughs> phenomenon about Jews and men of Jewish descent who served in the Nazi military. Have you ever heard about this? He looked at me in a surprised way, spotted Bomberger on the other end of the room, and then said, don't tell Bomberger, but we know he's a Jew. <laughs> so I won't say a thing. Now, what's interesting about this is this guy, I later found out in the archives, had written several times for Bomberger to get Aryanized, and he was successful. So he, as a quote-unquote Aryan officer, put his reputation and name on the line to endorse a half-Jew to get special clemency from Hitler, and he was willing to do that for a Jewish family. And Bomberger was able to get the German blood declaration from Hitler because he had lost an eye and was severely wounded, and that was another reason Hitler would Aryanize these Mischlinge. And until his dying day, he never knew that his whole company all knew he was of Jewish descent, and they did everything they could to protect him. I, again, I really got chills when you told me that story, but that demonstrates the universal, uh, universal theme of military service, right? Yeah. Is that your brothers and sisters in arms fighting for the same mission, and that stuff just doesn't matter. Oh, yeah. My, my uh, uh, platoon sergeant in the Marine Corps when I was at OCS, uh, a gunnery sergeant, Hill, big six foot four, probably 220, 230 uh, pound African-American man. He'd get in front of us. He's like, there's only one color, green. <laughs> <laughs> and he made sure we hammered that home all the time. And you, you know, you were an officer. I think, you know, when you have to live with somebody and you're depending on them for your life, regardless of your ethnicity, your religious background, your social economic uh, uh, foundation, you start to see the humanness of each other. And, and these guys saw that in the German military, and they became comrades. And you can't hate somebody that you break bread with and realize how close you are with each other. I mean, right. the beautiful bridges that bond us as humans are so much more plentiful than the tiny little streams that divide us from ethnicity and religion and political identification. But we fail to focus on the bridges. That's a great segue to our break. A lesson about humanity is a story that is perfect for our current uh, divisive times. So we are listening to author Brian Rigg talking about his book, Hitler's Jewish Soldiers. This is Race, Violence, and Medicine. We'll be back in a moment.
Welcome back to Race, Violence, and Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Brian H. Williams, and we are here with author Brian Rigg discussing Hitler's Jewish soldiers. Now, this is the first installment of the Race, Violence, and Medicine book club, and this was a segment of the show where I was going to dedicate it to your questions to ask author Brian Rigg. However, I've not received any questions from our loyal <laughs> listeners, but that's okay. I get it. You know, we're a new show growing mm. our, our listenership, and I dropped this on you kind of, you know, subtly in, in an email, but that's okay. Now you know. Go to Race, Violence, and Medicine. Get onto that um, newsletter. And then next month, you pick up the book, send your questions, and this I know it's going to grow. I know it's going to grow. So since I have more time, I have more questions because this book was its too much to go through in the time we have. But I want to just go to your, the title of your last chapter because this is what really fascinates me. What did the Mischlinge know about the Holocaust? So these soldiers of Jewish ancestry that were serving in the, the military, what did they know about what was happening around them? Yeah, I mean, very, very good question. Uh, and this is one of the most shocking pieces of information that I, I uncovered in my research. When I began this, I thought everybody in Nazi Germany knew about the Holocaust. How could they not know? Six million people were slaughtered systematically, half of them in only basically a year, 1942 to 43. And on average, every Mischling soldier that I documented lost between seven and eight relatives in the Holocaust, aunts, uncles, cousins, parents, and so on. How could they not know? Well, I found shockingly most of them did not know. They, they, and let's think about this, uh, and you have to really get into the history. Um, they knew it was bad being Jewish, and they did everything good to hide it or get away from it. That's true. They knew about persecution. Yeah, they knew about deportations, but where their relatives were being deported to was quite often beyond their knowledge. They knew about concentration camps, Dachau and Sachsenhausen and Buchenwald that been, were in Germany. I've been to Dachau. Yeah. It's, it's a very sobering experience. Very to go sobering, to one of those. yeah. And, you know, many of them didn't know about the death camps, but they knew about concentration camps. But what actually was going on in those camps was quite often beyond their imaginations. So that's still not enough evidence, you know, their oral testimonies and their letters and so on to, to really come to a conclusive statement yet that they didn't know about the Holocaust. What really tipped me over to realizing they didn't know is toward the end of the war in 44, Hitler had started to dismiss half-Jews in mass. We're talking about tens of thousands of soldiers. They leave the military. They're forced to go home. And ironically, while their Aryan comrades have the honor to get slaughtered on the fields of Russia, they're back home and they're keeping a lot of lonely wives and girlfriends company. They're studying the subject matters they're allowed to, but they're relatively safe, unless they're, you know, in, in some of the cities that got really hammered, like Hamburg and Dresden and Berlin. But most of them are relatively safe. Hitler, at the end of the war, said, you know what, we've killed off most of their parents and grandparents. We can't have their kids running around. Let's start deporting them to forced labor camps under Organisation Tote. Organization tot. Um, now, the question is this. Had these soldiers, these men, these Michelin, known about the Holocaust, why, when they were notified, quite often just through the mail, that they had to report in a week or two weeks to a train station to go to a camp, if they had known what happened to their relatives, why the heck did they report themselves? Now, Germans are very obedient, but still, had they known that their grandmother, who was deported two years before them, were deported directly to her death in Auschwitz or Soberbor-Meisenich, one would think they would have done everything they could have than to go to that train station. Right. to report. And almost all of them did go to the train station and report. And most of them tell me only when they got into the camps later. You know, and they, they had other options. They could have maybe tried to flee to Switzerland or try to get to Switzerland or go into hiding or take weapons with them so they knew as soon as I get out on Auschwitz, I'm going to kill as many guards as I can. They could have done a lot of things, but they willingly went to these train stations. They went to these camps and only when they got into these camps, and these are work camps, mind you. They're not concentration camps. Only when they got to these camps did they go, oh, my God. Now I'm starting to get a feel of what happened to Tante Trudy, you know, or Aunt Trudy, or right. what happened to Grandpa Schmidt, right. or what happened to Grandma Cohen. And only then did some of the guys try to escape and become, you know, or became very demoralized. But luckily, most of them survived that. And their testimony tells me that they have nothing to lose by telling me, yeah, we knew about it, and we were just doing our best to survive. Right. That's understandable. You know, and we were just being told we're in a totalitarian regime. People do not understand the freedoms of America. And that for all our imperfections, 
that we have a dual process of law and that it's getting better and that there's more equality than in most nations in the history of mankind is remarkable. Nazi Germany didn't have that. You couldn't go there going, you know what, he's being mean to me and being ra right. uh, you know, right. racially profiling me. You're dead. You know, so these guys were very controlled environment. They were demoralized quite often. They did what they were told. But ultimately, their, their behavior and their testimonies after the war showed that most of them didn't comprehend. Now, this is what's interesting. Almost all of them will tell me they should have comprehended it. They should have known. So what does that mean? It means we need to be hypervigilant that society today, for all its beauty, can, on a turn of a dime, so to speak, uh, can uh, change dramatically and become a horror show. We need to continually nurture our democracy. We need to support it. We need to serve it. But we need to also be very judgmental of it to try to get a more humane society of getting back to what I, I say. If we had a populace that said there's one race, the human race, we don't have all these little classifications. We get away from black, white, yellow, you know, all this other stuff, Michelin and so on. But we're far away from that, unfortunately, because we are colorblind, even though the whole pigmentation of skin is a recent phenomenon in Homo sapiens, maybe 20,000 years old. We've been around for 300,000. You know, we're all one color at one time. Well, that's going to be another show right there, Brian. We're going to talk about it. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> same, same as the, but, so getting back to that question, that, that come full circle, that was what was the most shocking thing. So what does it tell us when the people tell us that they should have known? It means they were not raised with enough critical analysis of looking at their society in a way to make it better and to prevent evil. Uh, they should have, they'll tell me, taken grandma and got her to the Switzerland. They should have gone into hiding. They should have protested more. I want to end on a very, uh, on this uh, topic that you brought up, a, a very fascinating uh, commentary that Martin Niemöller gave. He was a famous confessional church minister. Many people know about Bonhoeffer, but he was Bonhoeffer's mentor. And um, he said, you know, when they came for the um, socialists, I wasn't socialist, so I didn't stand up. When they came for the communists, I wasn't communist, I didn't stand up. When they came for the homosexuals, I wasn't homosexual, so I didn't stand up. When they came for me, it was too late. There so was the nobody left for him. So the lesson here is when you see an injustice, even though you may not like the people who are having the injustice against them from an ideological or political, you better stand up because if you want somebody to stand up for you, when it is your time, you got to show that you're willing to do it for them when it's their time. Thank you for that commentary. Mm -hmm. So lastly, Brian, when I, the, the book, the content was excellent. It was a great education. Um, Hitler's Jewish Soldiers, you can go to my website and check it out. But I was also um, drawn in by the, the story about individual identities and, you know, what is it, how am I defined? What does it mean to be who I am? And I, my own, you know, as a black American, you know, I, I feel that same kind of questioning about, like, where, where do you fit in? And I can see... Um, how that must have been challenging for these these people, particularly in a time of war, when they're asked to go out and, and kill. So that part of your writing also drew me in. Hey, thanks, uh, Brian. But, thanks for having me. Yeah, but talking about your writing, give us a little bit of writing about, like, what's your writing process? Give oh. uh, for We may have a prospective writer who's listening to this right now and wants to get, you know, get some free tips. Well, hey, yeah, you know, and, and um, you know, if, if there's anybody out there that does want to write, want to learn about the process, I'm more than happy to, you know, go through Brian, Dr. Uh, Williams here, and I'll be happy to answer questions or, or help you out. The process of writing, you know, it, through the process of empiricism, basically, is, you know, you learn knowledge, you learn how to do something by doing it. And a lot of times you just have to just jump in. And that's how you learn. That's the best experience. So the writing process for me, you know, I have the dubious honor of having failed first grade twice. You know, I had a horrible speech impediment. I had ADHD and dyslexia, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, and dyslexia. So writing was never easy for me. It's starting to get easy now at uh, 47. But what I would do is, for history... I would start with the subject matter. Okay, what does it mean to be Jewish in the Nazi military, and how did this happen? Those were the questions. And what does this tell us about Nazi Reich and race relations? And then I started just breaking out note cards. And I started, you know, who is a Jew? So anytime I read something in research that kind of answered that question, I put it in that file. And then, you know, how did a Michelin serve in the Nazi military? Every time I saw protocol and regulation and testimony about guys in the Nazi military who were of Jewish descent, I made that chapter. 
And before I knew it, after about four and a half, five years of researching, I had several thousand note cards. Okay. And I spliced them all together in a big box, you know, and I had, you know, dividers. And then I started taking them out and I started uh, organizing them chronologically. I'm a historian. And then I started writing it up. And then, as I was mentioning to you earlier today, one of my mentors, Richard Seltzer, who just passed away a few years ago, a wonderful writer, a physician as well, uh, he said, just tell the story. So the process, so once I got the facts as best I could, I tried to tie those facts together in a weave uh, of, of history using different subject matters to tell the story, uh, and that's how you write history. Great advice. Just tell the story. Just a, tell the story. A lot of work went into putting together this book. So highly recommend. I'd give it five stars. i got to hit the Amazon and give you a rating. Yeah. Uh, but Hitler's Jewish Soldiers, author is Brian Rigg, who's joined us today and taking us, giving us a deep dive into his book. But there is so much more to discuss. But unfortunately, we're going to have to cut, cut the show off now. So, Brian, before we leave, how can our listener find you later? Um, well, you know, you can find the, the book – uh, Hitler's Jewish Soldiers on Amazon. Uh, or you can go to my website, yeah, go to my, the Race, Violence, and Medicine book club, and it's yeah. all there. We're actually going to have a uh, archive of all the books, and you're number one, Brian, oh, and right. it will always be there. And there's, <laughs> there's also information. I'm a financial wealth manager, so I also have a website called Rig Wealth Management, and there's information on the books there as well. And Rig is with two Gs. That's right, R-I-G-G, wealthmanagement.com. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. This is the Race, Violence, and Medicine book club. I'm your host, Dr. Brian H. Williams. And you've been listening to I Am Royalty Radio. A few thank yous. We got the boss of the station here, Ty Ford, who's been running the board. He has this show, which is coming up hiatus next Tuesday, right, Ty? Um, yes. Next Tuesdays, 8 p.m., 8 to 10 p.m. Central Time. You can catch up, catch Ty and his sips. And we have several other shows, expanding lineups. So go to IamRoyaltyRadio.com. And I'm, you're listening, so you know where to find us, right? So, but tell your friends, IamRoyaltyRadio.com or download the app from the App Store. So until next time, I would love to stay, but we gotta go. My show, Race, Violence, and Medicine airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Central. And if you wanna keep up with me, just go to brianwilliamsmd.com. I spell Brian the correct way with an I. <laughs> brianwilliamsmd.com, and you can catch up with everything. Speaking, the, the book club, follow my blog. But the easiest thing to do is to sign up for the newsletter, and I'll come to you. No more than two or three times a month. I will, I will not hound your inbox. But thank you for listening. Appreciate it, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>